Chapter 18 of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 18 Cope at the Call of Duty. Cope took his own time in calling upon the Ashburn Avenue Circle, but he finally made in person the inquiries for which those made by telephone were an inadequate substitute. Yet he waited so long that only a few hours before the time he had set he received a sweet but somewhat urgent little note from Amy Leffingwell, suggesting his early appearance. He felt obliged to employ the first moments of his call in explaining that he had been upon the point of coming anyway, and that he had set aside the present hour two or three days before for this particular purpose, an explanation he acknowledged inwardly, which held no great advantage for him. "'Why am I spinning such stuff?' he asked himself impatiently. Amy's note, of course, minimized her aid to him, and magnified his aid to her. All this was in accord with established form, but it was in still stronger accord with her determination to idealize his share in the incident. His arm had grasped hers firmly, and she felt it yet. But when she went on to say, not for the first time nor for the second, how kind and sympathetic he had been in supporting her chin against those slapping waves when the shore had seemed so far away, he wondered whether he had really done so. For a moment or two, possibly, but surely not as part of a conscious, reasoned scheme to save. She was doing all right enough, he muttered in frowning protest. Neither did he welcome Mrs. Phillips' tendency to make him a hero. She was as willing as the girl herself to believe that he had kept Amy's chin above water, not for a moment merely, but through most of the transit to shore. He sat there uneasily, pressing his thumbs between his palms and his closed fingers, and drawing up his feet crampingly within their shoes. Yet it somewhat eased his tension to find that Medora Phillips was disposed to put Amy into a subordinate place. Amy had been but a means to an end. Her prime merit consisted in having given him a chance to function. Any other girl would have done as well. A slight relief, but a welcome. Another mitigation. The house. The room was full of people. The other young women of the household were present. Even the young businessman who had understood the stove and the pump had looked in. No chance for an intense, segregated appreciation. There had been another weekend at the dunes, when this youth had nimbly ranged the forest and the beach to find wood for the great open fireplace, and he had come, now, at the end of the season, to make due acknowledgments for privileges enjoyed. He, for his part, was willing enough to regard Amy as a heroine, but he considered her as a heroine linked with the wrong man and operative in the wrong place. He cared nothing in the world for Cope, and disparaged him as before, when he did not ignore him altogether. 
If Amy had but been rescued by him, George F. Pearson, instead of by this Bertram Cope, and if she had been snatched from a disorderly set of breakers at the foot of those disheveled sandhills instead of from the prim, prosy, domestic edge of Churchton, well, wouldn't the affair have been better set and better carried off? In such case, it might have been picturesque and heroic, instead of slightly silly. Yes, the room was full. Even Joseph Foster had contrived to get himself brought down by Peter. Further practice for the day when he should make a still more ambitious flight and dine at Randolph's new table. He sat in a dark corner of the room and tried to get, as best he might, the essential hang of the situation. The soft, insidious insistence of Amy, the momentum and bravado of his sister-in-law, the veiled disparagement of Cope in which George F. Pearson, seated on a sofa between Carolyn and Hortense, indulged for their benefit or for his own relief. Above all, he listened for tones and undertones from Cope himself. He had never seen Cope before, if indeed it could be said that he really saw him now, and he had never heard his speaking voice, save at a remove of two floors. Cope had taken his hand vigorously, as that of the only man, among many women, from whom he had much to expect, and had given him a dozen words in a loud tone which seemed to correspond with his pressure. But Cope's voice, in his hearing, had lapsed from resonance to non-resonance, and from that to tonelessness, and from that to quietude. Was the fellow in process of making a long diminuendo, a possible matter of weeks or of months? As before, when confronted by what had once seemed a paragon of dash and vigor, he scarcely knew whether to be exasperated or appeased. Through this variety of spoken words and unspoken thoughts, Hortense sat silent and watchful. Presently the talk lapsed. With the best will in the world, a small knot of people cannot go on elaborately embroidering upon a trivial incident forever. There was a shifting of groups, a change in subjects, yet Hortense continued to glower and to meditate. What had the incident really amounted to? What did the man himself really amount to? She soon found herself at his side, behind the library table and its spreading lampshade. He was silently handling a paper-cutter, with his eyes cast down. "'See me,' she said, in a tense, vibratory tone. "'Speak to me,' and she glowered upon him. "'I am no kitten like Amy. I am no tame tabby like Carolyn, sending out written invitations.' Throw a few words my way. Cope dropped the paper-cutter. Her address was like a dash of brine in the face, and he welcomed it. Tell me, did you look absurd then? She dashed ahead. A return to fresh water, after all. Why, he rejoined reluctantly, no man dressed in all his clothes looks any the better for being soaked through. And Amy... She must have looked absolutely ridiculous, that wide, flapping hat and all. I had been telling her for weeks that it was out of style. 
"'She threw it away,' said Cope shortly. "'And I suppose her hair looked as well as a woman's ever does "'when she's in the water.' "'Well,' she observed, "'it's one thing to be ridiculous, "'and another to go on being ridiculous. "'I hope you don't mean to do that.' "'The pronoun you has its equivalent aspects. "'Her expression, while marked enough, threw no clear light. Cope took the entire onus on himself. Of course no man would choose to be ridiculous, still less to stay so. Do, please, let me keep on dry land. I'm beginning to feel waterlogged. He shifted his ground. Why do you try to make it seem that I don't care to talk with you? Because you don't. Haven't I noticed it? I haven't. It seems to me that I... Of course you haven't. Does that make it any better? I'm sure the last thing in the world I should want to do would be to... I know. Would be to show partiality. To fail in treating all alike. Even that small program isn't much, nor likely to please any girl. But you have failed to carry it out, small as it is. Here in this house, there on the dunes, what have I been? And where? Put into any obscure corner, lost in the woods, left off somewhere on the edge of things. Cope stared and tried to stem her protests. She was of the blood, her aunt's own niece. But whereas Medora Phillips sometimes scrapped, as he called it, merely to promote social diversion and to keep the conversational ball rolling, this young person, a more vigorous organism, and with decided even exaggerated ideas as to her dues. Well, the room was still full, and he was glad enough of it. "'I don't know whether I like you or not,' she went on, in a low, rapid tone, "'and I don't suppose you very much like me, but I won't go on being ignored.' "'Ignored?' "'Why,' stammered Cope, "'my sense of obligation to this house—' She shrugged scornfully. His sense of obligation had been made none too apparent. Certainly, it had not been brought into line with her deserts and demands. Cope took up the paper-cutter again and looked out across the room. Amy Leffingwell, questioningly, was looking across at him. He could change feet if that made the general discomfort of his position any less. He did so. Amy was standing near the piano, and held a sheet or two of new music in her hands, and Medora Phillips, with a word of general explication and direction, made the girl's intention clear. Amy had a new song for baritone, with a violin obligato, and the usual piano accompaniment, and Cope was to sing it. "'Twas an extremely simple thing, quite within his compass, and Carolyn, who could read easy music at sight, it's awfully easy, declared Amy, would play the piano part, and Amy herself would perform the obligato, with no statement as to whether it was simple or not. Carolyn approached the task and the piano in the passive spirit of accommodation. Cope came forward with reluctance. This was not an evening when he felt like singing. Besides, he preferred to choose his own songs. Also, he would have preferred to warm up on something familiar. Amy took her instrument from its case with a suppressed sense of ecstasy, and it is the ecstatic who generally sets the pace. 
The thing went none too well. Amy was the only one who had seen the music before, and she was the only one who particularly wanted to make music now. However, the immediate need was not that the song should go well, but that it should go, that it should go on, that it should go on and on, repetitiously, until it should come, or even not come, to go better. She slid her bow across the strings with tasteful passion. She enjoyed still more than her own tones the tones of Cope's voice, tones which, whether in happy unison with hers or not, were, after all, seldom misplaced, whatever they may have lacked in heartiness and confidence. It was a short piece, and on the third time it went rather well. "'How perfectly lovely!' exclaimed Mrs. Phillips at the right moment. Cope smiled deprecatingly. "'It might be made to go very nicely,' he said. "'It has gone very nicely,' insisted Amy. "'It did this last time.' She waved her bow with some vivacity. She had heaved the whole of her young self into the work. She had been buoyed up by Cope's tones, which, with repetition, had gathered assurance if not expressiveness, and she based her estimate of the general effect on the impression which her own inner nature had experienced. And her impression was heightened when Pearson, forging forward, and ignoring both Cope and Carolyn, thanked her richly and emphatically for her part, a part which, to him, seemed the whole. Hortense, who had kept her place behind a large lampshade, twisted her interlocked fingers and said no word. Foster, who had disposed himself on an inconspicuous couch, kept his own counsel. After all, omne ignotum, Cope's singing had sounded better from upstairs. At close range, a ringing assertiveness had somehow failed. Cope had come with no desire to extend his stay beyond the limits of an evening call. He declined to sing on his own account, and soon rose as if to make his general adieu. "'You won't give us one of your own songs, then?' asked Medora Phillips, in a disappointed tone. "'And at my dinner?' No, she could not quite say that, at her dinner, Cope— whatever he had failed to do, had contributed no measure of entertainment for her guests. "'Give us a recitation, then,' persisted Medora, "'or tell us a story, or make up.' Here she indulged herself in an airily imperious flight. "'A story of your own on the spot.' "'A trifling request, truly, but—' "'Heavens,' said Cope, "'I am not an author. "'Still less—' an improvisatore. I am sure you could be, returned Medora fondly. Just try. Cope sat down again and began to run his eye uncomfortably about the room, as if dredging the air for an idea. Behind one corner of a mirror was a large bunch of drying leaves. They had been brought in from the sand dunes as a decorative souvenir of the autumn, and had kept their place through mere inertia. An oak bough, once crimson and russet, a convoluted length of bittersweet, to which a few split berries still clung, and a branch of sassafras, with its intriguing variety of leaves, a branch selected, in fact, because it gave, within narrow compass, the plant's entire scope and repertoire as to foliage. 
Cope caught at the sassafras as a falling balloonist catches at his parachute. Well, he said, still reluctant and fumbling, perhaps I can devise a legend, the legend, let us say, of the sassafras bush. Good, cried Medora heartily. Pearson, whispering to Amy Leffingwell, gave little heed to Cope and his strained endeavor to please Mrs. Phillips. Foster, quite passive, listened with curiosity for what might come. Or perhaps you would prefer folklore, Cope went on. Why, the sassafras has three kinds of leaves, or something like that. Better yet, exclaimed Medora. Listen, everybody, why the sassafras has three kinds of leaves. Pearson stopped his buzzings, and Cope began. The wood nymphs, he said slowly, were a nice enough lot of girls, but they labored under one great disadvantage. They had no thumbs. Hortense pricked up her ears. Did he mean to be personal? If so, he should find that one of the nymphs had a whole hand as surely as he himself had a cheek. Cope paused. "'Of course you've got to postulate something,' he submitted apologetically. "'Of course,' Medora agreed. "'So, when they bought their gloves or mittens, or whatever their hand-gear might be called, they usually patronized the hickory or the beech, or some other tree with leaves that were—' "'Ovate!' cried Medora delightedly. "'Ovate, yes, or whatever just the right word may be—' but a good many of them traded at the sign of the sassafras, where they found leaves that were similar, but rather more delicate. "'I believe he's going to do it,' thought Foster. Yet the nymphs knew that they lacked thumbs and kept on wanting them. So, during the long, dull winter, they put their minds to it, and finally thumbs came. "'Willpower,' said Medora." and early in April they went to the sassafras and said, We have thumbs, we have thumbs, so we need a different sort of mitten. The sassafras was only half awake. Thumbs? he repeated. How many? Two, cried the nymphs, two. A passing breeze roused the sassafras. He became at least three-quarters awake. I doubt it, muttered Hortense. That's interesting, he said. I aim to supply all new needs. Come back in a month or so, and meanwhile, I'll see what I can do for you. In May, the nymphs returned with their thumbs and asked, How about our new mittens? The story was really underway now, and Cope went on with more confidence and with greater animation. Look and see, said the sassafras. They looked and saw. Among its simple, ordinary leaves were several with two lobes, one on each side. Will these do? Do, said the nymphs. We said we had two thumbs, but we meant one on each hand, stupid. Do? We should say not. The sassafras was mortified. Well, he said, that's all I can manage this season. I'm sorry not to have understood you young ladies and your needs. Come back again next spring. It was a long time to wait, but they waited. 
next May. Amy, now unworried by George Pearson, began to get the thread of the thing. Foster was sure the thread would run through. Hortense was still alert for ulterior meanings. Poor Cope, however, had no ambition to spin a double thread. A single one was all he was equal to. Next May, the nymphs, after nursing their thumbs for a year, Hortense frowned, came back again, and there, among the plain leaves and the double-lobed leaves, were several fresh, bright, smooth ones, with a single lobe well to one side, the very thing for mittens. And, yes, he has done it, Foster acknowledged. And that, ended Cope rather stridently, as he rose to go on the flood of a sudden yet unexpected success, is why the sassafras... Why the sassafras has three kinds of leaves, cried Medora in triumph. Mittens for midsummer made no difficulty. Cope gave Carolyn careful thanks for her support at the piano, and did not see that she felt he too could be a poet if he only would. He went out of his way to shake hands with Hortense, and did not realize how nearly a new quarrel had opened. He stepped over to do the like with Amy, but she went out with him into the hall, the only one of the party who did, and even accompanied him to the front door. "'Thank you so much,' she said, looking up into his face smilingly, and holding his hand with a long, clinging touch. "'It went beautifully, and there are others that will go even better.' "'Others?' He thought for an instant that she was thanking him for his legend, and was even threatening to regard him as a flowing fount of invention, but he soon realized that her mind was fixed exclusively on their duet, if such it was to be called. The deuce, he thought, enough is enough. Despite his success with the sassafras, he went home discomforted and even flustered, that hand was too much like the hand of possession. The girl was stealing over him like a light, intangible vapor. He struck ahead with a quicker gait, as if trying to outwalk a creeping fog. One consolation, however, Hortense had come like a puff of wind. Even a second squall from the same quarter would not be altogether amiss. And had there not been one further fleeting source of reassurance? Had he not, on leaving, caught through the open door of the drawing-room an elevation of Medora Phillips' eyebrows, which seemed to say fondly, indulgently, yet a bit ironically, Oh, you foolish girl! Yet if a girl is foolish, and is going to persist in her folly, a lightly lifted pair of eyebrows will not always stay her course. Her gathering momentum is hardly to be checked by such slender means. End of chapter 18. Recording by James K. White. Chula Vista.